This episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by Sunday School, a Pillar Bible study, a new podcast from Pillar Media featuring Pillar editor J.D. Flynn and biblical scholar Dr. Scott Powell taking an educational walk through the scriptures. Season one is the Gospel of Mark. You can get it now wherever you get your good podcasts. Sunday School, a Pillar Bible study. Hey everybody, welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief J.D. Flynn, and I am coming to you this morning. We're recording on Friday morning, and I am coming to you this morning from sunny San Diego, California, where I'm not here for a reporting trip. I'm actually here because I was invited to come here and give a couple of speeches, and uh, I've been doing that, and I got one more. But right now, I'm not doing that. Uh, I am I'm mostly, in this podcast, not speechifying, but listening to my uh, colleague and friend, learned, wise, humble, and sage, um, Pillar co-founder and editor Ed Condon. Ed, how's it, as they say? Um, no, I'm doing well, J.D. I, it's, uh, it is a Friday. I didn't get to do something this week that I really wanted to do, which, which kind of bums me out, but, you know, that's okay. Cut the grass, vent your spleen. Uh, Chain smoke an entire carton of cigarettes on your back deck. Well, I um, I, I I did two of the three of those. Uh, Fight some enemy. I these are the things you like to do. These are the things I like to do. Um, no, I, I I haven't mowed my lawn, but mercifully the seasons have turned now in DC, so you know I no longer have to mow my lawn twice a week for it to. I forgot about seasons because I am I. You I live in Colorado where there are no seasons. Oh, you're in well, California no, this I, weekend. I'm in California. They have nothing. No, yeah. what I didn't get to. I, we so we have um, some in-laws visiting from overseas this week and i like to give in-laws particularly the ones that i i love dearly as i do these um it's you know it's our child's godparents um i like to give them the full american experience and you know they've done they've been to dc before so they've done the sort of you know big monuments and all that stuff but what i really wanted to do was to give them the beating heart of americana so what i wanted to do was either tonight or last night I wanted to take them to medieval times. Oh man, gosh, that would be a gift. Everybody loves in Everyone, a certain and sense. And it's so times. American. It's so perfectly American. What are you talking about? It's a recreation of medieval European feasts. This is my point: is that so much of the most <laughs> authentic American culture is this bizarre, sort of Disneyland cartoonish reimagining of entire periods of history that there's like very little like i know the women wear pointy hats and the men have swords and that is enough that's all i yeah that's right, exactly we can write a script out of that we can produce an entire an entire evening of of dinner theater out of that which includes sort of the delivery of half a chicken you must eat with your fingers and some weird soup precisely all of the things what yeah, is i mean right. and not only that and like i to be honest i have been to medieval times before the first time I went was when I, I think it was my 10th birthday. It was all I wanted was I want to go to medieval times. And you were in English in, in, when you were 10? No, no. You still that lived was, in America? I, I was still in Chicago at that point. Oh, okay. And um, two of my cousins came up from Indiana and it was kind of an outing and we had, a, it was the best. Honestly, JD, I think it may be still the best night out of my life ever. Wow. It was my 10th birthday I totally at medieval get times. That. And I mean, not only is the, you know, the dinner theater is good, it's people beating seven bells out of each other with, you know, sparks flying. And so that's, that's just great entertainment. But the people there, it's the people oh, yeah. that make it. Oh, shady. it's the greatest people watching, to be sure. It is. And um, everyone's having a great time. There's no, you know, there's no, it's not like you're going to, you know, a, a sports ball game where, you know, there's like intense rivalry and people are angry and maybe some people pre-gamed a little too hard or like everyone's just there to have a great time. Yeah. What could be better? What could be more authentically American, I ask you, than medieval times? Two comments. One, I I have only been to medieval times, I think, twice, but the first time I was also around 10. And you know how they seat you in sections yeah. where you have a night that you cheer for? I still so know the section we I said in when the, I was 10. I do, too. We were in the black and white yes, section. I was and my too. dad I was too. made a cheer. Black and white. He's our knight. Yellow and red. He'll be dead. And we chanted that the whole night. And I can still obviously recite it without prompting from memory. And, uh, and I, felt, I just felt like we were really you know into it. One, that. Two, have you ever... If you... Uh, <laughs> If you find yourself sleepless at some point, or if you feel like sort of sloughing off from work for a couple of hours at some point in your life, I hope that won't happen. But a fascinating thing to do is to just sort of dive into the world of um, medieval times employees on Reddit giving accounts of their real and actual life. You know, um, it's really, really interesting. And if I remember correctly, there was a bit of a controversy maybe two or three years ago. Again, I'm not sure if I remember this correctly, but there was a bit of a controversy a couple of years ago about the Medieval Times employees wanting to unionize. I think that I think the New Jersey sure, would be a employees were going to vote to right exactly to make a guild. Uh, maybe they did vote to make a guild even, but it was 
very controversial, and they pointed out, like, look, we are extremely low-paid performers in a physically demanding thing. And uh, and it was really, I mean, there's a whole controversy about this. The, 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 uh, so the they're professional wrestlers, man. Medieval they, times. They, they fight tooth and claw uh, not to let professional wrestlers unionize. And it's the same thing. I, you'd think they'd want to. They do want to. I'm sure. But, you know, the owners and ownership and management, they don't want that. Yeah, and they really have, I mean... <laughs> You have a very – if you're a professional wrestler or a, or a jouster in the modern era, um, there are very few places for you to peddle that extremely specialized skill um, unless you somehow seize the means of production and create some sort of worker collaborative version of medieval a times sort of peasants or professional revolt wrestling. In, in yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, I would go to that. But I, the setup cost must be prohibitive because you need an arena basically. And horses. You and horses. horses. Yeah, for professional wrestling or medieval times. Well, you would think that Denver would be a, a sort of ideal location for this because presumably everyone, every third person there has horses. I mean, I've understood <laughs> this. Um, uh, but Denver would be a good location in a lot of reasons, for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons it would be a bad location is um, the drugs. You know, um, I don't know. We don't even have a medieval times. And I think part of the reason is that given given the pervasiveness of marijuana in our Western culture, I think people are too sluggish to really get into it, you know? So you really can't get the crowds. In the East Coast, you know, you can get those crowds really moving because um, they're, you know, probably all, if they're, if they're doing something substance-wise, they're probably just, you know, drinking a lot of angry gin. There's the a Chili's across like the parking lots That's from right. the local medieval times. <laughs> Good pregame that we all, had there. That says it all. Okay, that's enough of that. I hope that you get to take them. Is it too late? It, it's not that it's too late. We haven't been able to secure a babysitter who can come sufficiently early for us to leave in time to get to curtain up at seven. Why? Why? Why won't you take your daughter? What kind of father? Uh, no, it's not that I'm against taking children to. What medieval father times. among you? No, but your she's, asks, she's or... right at that. She's only one, just turned one, and she's right at that in between phase where she like has worked out that she can kind of walk a little bit, and so yeah. she just will not sit still. Like you can't oh, hold you. her, you can't sit her down. Like she, if she's awake, she wants to be moving, and so it's just it's non-starter right now. I mean, in a year, absolutely. And if six months ago, I'd have just strapped her to the front of me in one of the baby carriers and just been like, "You're gonna, you're gonna get a show." But she's, there are probably people who would say it's not appropriate to take a one and a half year old to medieval times, but I don't agree with them, and this is hard. Well, they're wrong, and you know, yeah. I've I have strong opinions on where it is and is not appropriate, and what kind of shows it is and is not appropriate to take children to, and medieval times, hundred percent endorsement. Kids need to learn about the mean streets of the jousting tournaments. If you are, especially like if you homeschool, then that's just, that's a field trip, right? I mean, that's just, yeah. it's history for the semester. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, great. All right. We're going to talk about some other stuff now, Ed. Um, Can I tell you what? one other thing? I tried to, I, I think I started a fight I, in, in the marriage of some really good friends of mine um, yesterday. Was it yesterday? No, it was Wednesday. Um, so I, I was talking to a friend of mine and. My wife obviously was there, and so was his wife. And and I was trying to sell him. He's a car guy, and he's very handy to an extent that I am not. Um, he knows how to work on cars or whatnot. Yeah, he like he replaces his own brakes, and you know he's like he's. I don't think the guy's taken his car or the family van, you know, standard issue Catholic family van, uh, to a mechanic ever. He just does everything himself. He's perfectly capable. And I said, you know, you can get for I think not a prohibitive amount of money because he was talking about how he needs a new car. Um, I said, you could get a, a kit car, like a Caterham 7, and assemble mm-hmm. it yourself and have like an amazingly insane, cool convertible racing roadster, you know, a vintage Lotus, basically. And I bet you, because they homeschool, I said, you just call the shop class and the price of the kit car would probably be a write-off. Yeah, right. I mean, it's an educational yeah. thing, and they might actually give you a gigantic discount. And you're not going to like they, not teach your sons how to assemble a car in your own garage if you've got it, right? Yeah, no, that's absolutely. So that's, that's homeschooling. That's shop class. Mm-hmm. I think that's Tax I think that's right. Shop class and soulcraft, as it were. Yeah. His wife did not agree with this at all, so I may have started a, a, a serious fight because he immediately bit on this like a trout on a hook. But you know, we'll uh, we'll see how it works out. Well. Yeah. Uh, keep us posted. I mean, we all want to know. Okay. Ed, we need to now, um, we're going to now talk about some other things because there's a lot happening in news this week. One of the first things I just want to say is something very cool happened for the pillar this week. 
something very, very cool. I'm humbled by it. And I, I actually am raising it because I just want to thank those of you who read The Pillar and, and listen to The Pillar, and especially those of you who are subscribers, because we interviewed the Ecumenical Patriarch of Constantinople this week. And I think that's just the Ecumenical Patriarch of Constantinople is effectively is the first among equals of the patriarchs of orthodoxy. So he is he is in a real sense, the sort of spiritual leader of the Orthodox community, not not the juridic leader in the same way that the Pope is, but to be sure, the, a principle of communion and unity in the Orthodox communion. And uh, that's a big deal. He's one of the most influential religious figures in the world, and we interviewed him, and I just, I was super excited about that. His beatitude is kind of a big deal. Um, kind of a big deal. So that is, yeah, no, that was fun. Um, I want to see if we can get Patriarch Carol next. I don't know if we're going to get him. I don't know if we're going to get him either, but I wouldn't have put money on us getting Bartholomew. So, But know. look, yeah, the ecumenical patriarch had some things that he wanted to say about Kirill and the war in Ukraine. And he, he said rather directly that he thinks Kirill should resign effectively as the um, patriarch of Moscow. And that he said those things that he chose as the sort of English language place where he would deliver those things was the pillar. Um, first of all, they're significant and important things. But second of all, I'm just humbled that he said them at the pillar. And um, and, it, and it goes to show subscribers that you have helped to build a thing that is that is actually impactful in the life of the church and the life of believers in lots of ways that I, I'm, I'm just I'm genuinely grateful to you. When I, when I saw that happen, I felt humbled that we should be in this position. And if, if we're going to talk up how did, how did such a thing happen and thanking people for helping us and everything, let's be very, very clear. Luke Coppin got that interview. Luke Coppin did and it. That's right. We Absolutely. would not have that interview if we did not have Luke Coppin. So when yeah. we do things like say, please, for the love of God, subscribe to the pillar so that we can keep growing because growing means we do better journalism. It means we grow, we can have Luke Coppin and Luke Coppin can interview the the head of Orthodox Christianity. Orthodoxy. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay, cool. Done. Um, here's what we're going to talk about. Um, and a lot happening in the news this week. Some, A lot of it is related in various ways. But one of the things that we really need to talk about, or the place where we need to start, is a study that was released by uh, um, by sociologists and um, and others at the Catholic University of America, uh, a kind of a joint project of, of uh, a joint initiative of something at the C- at COA called the Catholic Project, which was sort of this little institute at COA that was founded in the wake of McCarrick to kind of um, think about and uh, host various kinds of uh, conversations about how the church can learn from the lessons of 2018 and following. Um, so this was a joint initiative of the Catholic Project and the Department of Sociology at COA, and it was a broad study of priests and bishops in the United States. They they kind of surveyed 10,000 priests in the U.S. I think something like 3,600 actually participated in the survey. 3,516 participated in the survey across um, 191 dioceses and eparchies, so Latin Catholics and Eastern Catholics, uh, all participating in this thing. Then they did qualitative research where they talked um, in depth with more than 100 priests who participated in the survey. And they, sent, they surveyed... Um, 131 diocesan bishops in the United States, which is a pretty good number of them. Um, well, they surveyed more than that. They got 131 responses. Yeah, they got 100. Thank you. They got 131 responses from diocesan bishops. That's from an insane well, is, response rate. It's like almost history. 70 percent of yeah. diocesan bishops. It's a big deal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, this report came out, and uh, it said a couple of things. The, some of the first things that it said is that priests for the most part, report that they are flourishing. Um, they, the sociologists use this thing called the Harvard Flourishing Index, which um, asks a set of particular questions, asks people to sort of scale their responses on a one to ten, a zero to ten basis, and then makes an assessment of their well-being effectively. And um, the survey found that priests and bishops can both be described according to the Harvard Flourishing Index, which sociologists regard as a kind of objective or at least consistent measure across different populations, as flourishing. 77% of priests, 81% of bishops flourishing. So that's good good news, it's, right? Well, it's not only that. They found that basically an American Catholic priest is more more than average, is flourishing more often than average. Like priests yeah, are more happier, more satisfied, than, right. better in their physical and mental health their personal well-being than the average person, which is great. I mean, that's encouraging. I mean, that's what you'd expect from people who are hopefully living a vocation to serve the Lord. I mean, you would you, you would hope that that would be a fulfilling endeavor, and so it seems to be, which is great. Yeah, so that's good news. L- less good news, or m- I suppose it's bad perhaps news, good Jay. news to know it. Well, I mean, it's good news to know it, but yeah, bad news on its face is— um, what the survey reported about the relationship of trust between priests and their bishops. Uh, 49% of diocesan priests said that they felt that they could trust their bishop, their own bishop, that they could have confidence in their bishop. Um, only 24% of priests said that they have confidence in bishops in general, like in the, in the episcopate, 
qua episcopate in the United States. So 49% say they trust their bishop. 24% say they have trust in the episcopate. That's less than a quarter of priests who say, I have trust in Americans, American bishops. And, of course, that's not surprising, but it isn't, it isn't good either. Uh, um, no, it's not good. It's, it's very bad. I mean, if, if you're saying less than a quarter of U.S. Catholic priests have confidence in the bishops, that's, that's kind of a crisis of communion in the hierarchy. Well, let's talk about, though, what um, what sort of compounds this. There are some factors, I think, that call for a somewhat measured approach to this. But first, I just want to talk about what compounds that. There's a major difference that isn't there between the way that bishops perceive their relationship with priests and the way that priests perceive the relationship with bishops. Uh, there's more than a little difference. Yeah, it's it's pretty stark that they're, you know, and, and again, this is the, the findings of the report were, were surprising to me in how, I mean, it to, a, to an extent, some things I would have assumed were confirmed by this, but were much starker and worse than I would have anticipated. But for the bishops, I guess, at least according to what the survey found, this will have come as a galloping shock to them, which is in itself worrying that there is not... How, how do you mean? Well, well, so for example... Tell the people the, what they the, the know. diocesan bishops were asked, and again, we, had an, we saw an overwhelming response rate um, among the bishops to this survey how they would describe their own ability to relate with their priests, how they describe themselves as relating to their priests. They were given a, a slate of you know words to describe it. And so, for example, 73% of bishops said that they saw themselves relating to their priests as brothers, or 70% would say the word father was appropriate. 73% said co-worker. Um, 83% said shepherd. But here's the thing. Um, for the the words brother, father, co-worker, and servant, um, Basically, less than a third of diocesan priests would agree in describing their own bishops that way. That's that's not great. And the number one thing that priests used, the number one term priests used to describe their bishop was administrator. And um, and then bishops said that they believed that they would be uh, that if a priest came to them with a personal problem, they would be very you know adept. Bishops overwhelmingly said that they would be adept at helping a priest or make prioritize would, helping a priest. That they would do very well at extending right. personal help to them. But priests said that they were pretty unlikely. In the aggregate, priests said that they were pretty unlikely to come to their bishops with a personal problem. That they wouldn't trust their bishop to help them address a personal problem in a meaningful way. Uh, I'm trying to find the exact stat on that, but it was it was a very very low number. It was a very low yeah. number indeed, said so they would. And one of the in-depth, you know, they did this in-depth interviews with people to um, kind of flesh out the the trends and the responses. And one one priest said, I'd sooner call a stranger in, in the street than call my diocesan yeah. bishop if I had a problem. Like that's the, yeah. the lack of confidence that was being reported here. And, and of course, that particular phrasing is is anecdotal, but the d- number reflects that there's a yeah. actually a relatively decent percentage of priests who would agree. I found who, it. So it's ninety two percent of bishops said they they would uh, do very well um, with responding to a priest who was having personal struggles, and thirty six percent of their priests agreed. That's yeah. that's that's a big that's big not gap. good. Now, here are some things. So there's been a lot of response to this to this survey, as you can imagine. There are other other interesting things about it that we might get to talking about, like that a high percentage of priests sort of are very afraid of being the subject of a false allegation of misconduct. And we yeah. might talk about that. Um, I think that that's a, an important thing to discuss. Um, and, and it's probably correlated to this in a certain way. But I just want to kind of um, contextualize this these numbers a little bit, because there's been a lot of press about them, and understandably so. And they are, it is, they are on their face discouraging. What I was surprised by, Ed, is that the the um, what I felt was lacking in this survey, very honestly, was a lot of comparative data, both historically comparative data and um, sort of non-clerical comparative data. So I, I wanted to know what do, um, like, uh, pastors of other religious denominations say about their trust and their kind of ecclesiastical administrators, whatever they are, what do people say generally about their bosses and what's the comparison there? Not that the bishop is the boss, but what's the comparison there? And I wanted to know more about how these numbers have trended historically. And there wasn't a whole lot of that, which means that that knowing the context for these as compared to sort of levels of trust in the general population is, is um, you know, is a black box for us. I suppose we could have done that research, but I haven't done well, it yet. Well, didn't we do um, a, a pillar survey last year of American Catholic views, and I'm pretty sure it registered some fairly low numbers. It did register some fairly low, but again, sort of same time period, right? So what I'm curious about is just to look at this over a time horizon, because the one thing I found really interesting where there was a comparative was that uh, the report found that uh, right now in 2022, um, 
49% of priests say that they uh, have confidence in their bishop. Um, in 1993, so what is that, 30 years ago, in 1993, that number was 55%. So as much as we say there is a crisis of trust in bishops, this is not a historically kind of new thing. 49% 2022, as Far back as the report at least gives us, 1993, 55% of bishops say they have confidence in their priests. So that's a, that's a Wait, decrease of 6%. Bishops said they have confidence in their priests? Or, or priests said they have confidence in their bishops, rather. So that's a decrease of 6%, which is, um, in a certain sense, from my point of view, given everything that has happened, a, 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 lower, a, le- a smaller drop a than I would hold. have expected. I, I, I think I, I, I'm surprised there wasn't a bigger drop. Now, there's a middle number that's pretty interesting. In 2001, right, so right before the Boston sexual abuse scandals that begin everything that happened, started happening in 2002 and the charter and all of those things, there's a high. We only have these three numbers, but there's a high. 63% of priests in 2001 said they have confidence in their bishops. So the drop from 63% to 49% is, is more in the last 20 years. Some we've would seen, call it precipitous, you know, but okay. <laughs> in the last 20 years, we've seen, what is that, a 14% drop. But I honestly, even that, I would have expected more. And what that tells me is not um, is not that it's not an issue that it's not an issue that bishops don't that priests don't have confidence in their bishop, but just that it's not. This is not as much a historical aberration as I would have expected. Mm. Well, okay. Uh, what the report does have, if you you know, if you dig sort of behind the initial slide pack, and you know, there was a very and you tell me because you did the reporting on it, so you have done more digging than me. sure. And also, I mean, there was a really great presentation um, of the entirety of the findings, uh, which I which I listened into and everything. Um, there is all other interesting detail behind the sort of headline figures. So, for example, priests in smaller dioceses and more rural dioceses, I think, were more likely to register personal trust and support in their bishop and have a mm-hmm. good, positive relationship with him um, and still maintain an overall negative impression and lack of trust and confidence in the episcopate as a whole. Um, whereas if you are dealing with priests, as I recall, in um, larger metropolitan archdioceses and things, the the, the trust factor in the local bishop among local priests dropped considerably. And I think mm-hmm. some of that is potentially just a, a reality of scale. Um, yeah. Although it does say something about, you know, it does, it should be, I think, a useful consideration when like, oh, shouldn't we be having more super dioceses and merging? So anyway, there's that. Also, religious priests were generally speaking a lot more uh, easy about some of the big discontent factors than diocesan mm. priests. They had a very different experience of community and hierarchy and authority. They, they And they trusted their provincial superiors more? Yeah, they trusted their provincial They did not ha- report the same levels of sort of constant paranoia of being uh, the victim of a false accusation or being thrown under the bus, as many of the priests put it, the first sign of trouble, that they, generally speaking, had more confidence in their order that they would, you know, give them due process, you know, really give them a fair shake uh, from the sort of justice system and everything. So that was an interesting disparity. And I mean, I think it is important to to say that these are headline sort of national figures and aggregated. I mean, we, I know certainly, and I know you do too, individual bishops who, you know, this song isn't about them. You know, they they have, their their hallmark is close personal intimate relationships with their own priests as a as a father as a brother as a shepherd as one who prays with them and you know all that we know individual cases where that is the case and i think we need to bear in mind that just because the headline figures are so grim doesn't mean there are no good bishops or anything like that but i think what does need to be taken very very seriously is the aggregate response to the episcopate as a whole mm-hmm. like that right that's bad if yeah to be sure if the if the presbyterate of the united states thinks the episcopate of the united states is fundamentally untrustworthy that bleeds in heavily to the church's work of evangelization and pastoral care like that that cannot not have an effect yeah yeah that's right no i think that's right and i mean even if the comparative historical stuff that you raise is you know there was you know you could say well there was never over ever overwhelming confidence or whatever it's like well, saying "twas ever thus" does not exactly paint a rosy picture. No, it doesn't, right? And especially, yeah. W- one of the things that strikes me about the point you make about sort of rural and um, uh, and and more and larger metropolitan seas or, or more urban seas or something like that is one. There is, um, you know, the possibility that that just means that priests 
in uh, in smaller dioceses feel like they know their bishop more, mm-hmm. and I know bishops of small rural dioceses who like I know a bishop who regularly I can't remember how what the frequency is, but regularly I think it's once a week zooms with his whole presbyterate so they can pray the office together. They pray morning prayer together like right. by Zoom. That's and then he's kind of available and he has some time carved out after that for being with his priest. So there's so those kinds of things are e- obviously just being present in those ways is much easier to do when the administrative sort of burden of uh, or responsibilities of a diocese are lesser and those kinds of things. So so that makes sense in a certain way. What I wonder is, does the disparity between those in smaller dioceses who say they have more trust in their bishop and the despair, and those in larger dioceses who say they don't, to some degree it's almost certainly a function of knowing the man. But to another degree, is it possible that it says something about the kind of person who is promoted? Yeah, I think it does. And I think it also says something Marx. about how power is exercised in large dioceses, particularly within the context of the sexual abuse crisis. The, yeah. the bottom line is if you are a priest in a large metropolitan archdiocese, you are far more likely to be, in the words of the survey's findings, thrown under the bus and treated as an expendable liability by the chancery machinery, by your bishop. That you are, I think, and this is anecdotal, but it's my experience practicing canon law, that if you are a priest accused of a particularly serious crime or misconduct— and you are in a small rural diocese, you are far more likely to get a real shake of, you know, of the hand of justice and see something like due process than you are if you are in a large metropolitan archdiocese, that you are far more likely to find yourself up in front of some sort of star chamber, not told what you're accused of, yanked from ministry, um, you know, publicly pilloried as credibly accused of something that you may not even know what it is you're accused of until you read it on the diocesan website. And you know, never see a hope of coming back to ministry and all of the things that the, and the, the, you know, the survey flagged up. This is a, as a real overwhelming, almost paranoia, um, certainly pervasive anxiety amongst U.S. priests. I think that's a, that's a much more grounded fear in a larger archdiocese than it is in a, in a smaller rural diocese. And I think you're right. I think that if you are being promoted to a large metropolitan archdiocese, not everyone, I'm, you know, I don't want to... And not, not, this is not an ideological thing either. Not right? an ideological thing, sort of but cuts, it does cuts. tend towards the sort of people who are, shall we say, more adept at behaving um, like CEOs. <laughs> who, fit a mold, who fit a certain mold, right? Who yeah, fit a who certain are better mold at and present in Acting like CEOs or HR yeah. managers or, yeah. uh, you know, any of the other not particularly flattering or ecclesiastical titles that the presbyter is associated with bishops versus shepherd, brother, father, co-worker. You know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Small dioceses, large dioceses, I, as you know, have reported on a pretty fair number of dioceses that are in some state of dysfunction. And what I hear priests say often when they're in dioceses in difficulty, the sort of number one thing I hear them say about the struggles they have is, he doesn't know us. He doesn't know us as a presbyterate. He doesn't listen to us as a presbyterate. If there's one thing that I have taken away from doing a lot of reporting on dioceses that are in some kind of a crisis, it's that a great deal can be weathered and a great deal of, even of difficult decisions can be accepted if a presbyterate feels that their bishop knows them. And you know what kind of mindset that is? Them. It's a synodal yeah. mindset. I'm not even <laughs> We're I'm talk. not being sarcastic. I'm being 100% yeah. sincere. A truly yeah. synodal mindset mm-hmm. is one where the the everyone is known. That you know the the old legal maxim what what touches all should be approved by all, right? It doesn't mean you get a popular vote, but it does mean there should be real people should be heard. People yeah. should be heard. Yeah. What I want to do in a minute is talk about what some of the like if you were a bishop, what could you take away from this report as something to address, and uh, and then what are some of the things that I think there are some things about the the organizational structure of the church, some things which are sort of systemically at issue in this report, and we can sort of talk about that a little bit as well. Um, but uh, before we do that, we will be uh, right back after a word from our sponsor. Okay, Ed, this week's episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by uh, Camp Voitiwa. If you listened to the Pillar Podcast a couple of weeks ago, you heard uh, Hat Chat and then Hat Chat Part 2. You heard a little story about me auctioning off my hat. Well, here's the context for my first foray into auctioneering. That event that I talked about was a fundraiser for uh, a Catholic apostolate that I really care about. 
um, founded by people who I really care about called Camp Voitiwa. Camp Voitiwa is unique among Catholic camps in that it aims to use nature and the wilderness and mountain experiences to catechize um, and form children's hearts and minds for Jesus Christ. In the spirit of JP2, their namesake, Camp Voitiwa, strives to remind young men and women about their real identity in Christ. It sounds like a great program. It sounds like a great camp. I love the idea. I love the premise behind it. I love all the people involved and anything that gets you to wear cowboy hats is how could that be anything other than something you should support? Okay, so at Camp Voitiwa, um, uh, campers are unplugged from technology, social media, the noise of the world, and they're led on real transformative adventures that are oriented not only towards sort of having fun in the mountains, but towards catechesis in the mode of Voitiwa, a place where the sacraments are central, a place where middle schoolers and high schoolers can really be transformed in faith. Now, here's the deal um, with Camp Voitiwa. It's extremely popular, and um, there is uh, it's not the sort of thing for which anyone can sign up because there are far more people who are interested than there are spots. So what Camp Boitiwa does every year is have a registration lottery. If you're interested in sending your child to a camp like that, you can go to campw.com and sign up for the registration lottery, which would allow you, if your number is chosen, to have a slot to be able to send your kid to this camp. This is a really cool thing. The thing is, the registration lottery is only open until October the 25th. So if this thing sounds great for your family, even if you're not 100% sure you could want to go or it'll work, you can still sign up for the registration lottery and then see what happens. You go to camp-w.com, camp-w.com to learn more about this apostolate and to learn more about the registration lottery, which closes on October the 25th. We are back, Ed. Uh, we are back, and we're talking about a survey that was released by Catholic University of America this week in which um, there was expressed uh, a crisis of trust between diocesan priests and their bishops, and especially a crisis of trust between diocesan priests and the American Episcopate writ large. Priests uh, in a survey conducted by Catholic universities say overwhelmingly that while um, almost half of them have confidence in their own diocesan bishop, very few of them, fewer than a quarter of them, have confidence in the American Episcopate as a whole. Um, when there was some qualitative research done and priests were interviewed, priests described bishops as things like imperious, out of touch, and um, uh, administrators who— law. Above the law. And there were those who described their bishops as—or who described the bishops, you know, the sort of vast majority of the Episcopate as they saw it, as being careerists who were, um, who were out of touch and uh, primarily focused on administration. What can a bishop do about this? I mean, we—this is—as uh, I say, you know, it's— um, I would have expected the decline to be more precipitous than it is. There has been, you know, um, going back, evidence of uh, a, a relatively high degree of non-confidence in one's bishops, at least according to the data of this. But nevertheless, this is a serious issue. And if you talk to priests, as we do, or if you are a priest, as many of our listeners are, you know that this is a really hard time. This is just a difficult morale time in the presbyterates of America that we talk with, that a lot of priests are just struggling with their relationship with their bishop and their relationship with the hierarchical constitution of the church. So I, I want to talk about what individual bishops can do, and then I want to talk about some of the challenges that I think we just need to kind of um, think about, accept, and integrate into the way we think about the church and the, the mission and ministry of bishops. But Ed, what, what would you, if you were a diocesan bishop, where would you start with this? So I think there are, there are sort of thematic things that should be taken, that could be taken away from this. I think there are practical things. Generally speaking, and this is, I think, nowhere more especially true than when watching sort of big set piece events like USCCB assemblies or reading the kind of stuff that comes out of the bishops conference on behalf of the bishops quote unquote uh, that there need there could be and should be occasion to revisit the entire style tone and vision of how um, the bishops in this country as a whole speak to each other and speak out as a group that if the perception amongst even their own clergy is that they are distant, imperious, distracted, technocratic, whatever, then the the tone with which they conduct their public conversations and public discourse and public statements is forming that in part and can and should be addressed. I wrote a thing earlier this week where I said, you know, I will be very interested to see when we get to Baltimore in three weeks' time if I mean, I, I, I would assume, I would hope that this survey will be mentioned from the floor all over the place, but I will be particularly interested to see if it becomes a talking point amongst any of the 10 candidates for the USCSB presidency and vice presidency, that if any of them can sort of say, wait a minute, 
we have a, a way of doing business here that we're all very comfortable in, so much so that, you know, often the sort of presidential elections become a formality because there's a sense of next guy in line, you know, and all this stuff. Maybe we need to really rethink whether the ordinary way of doing business, the ordinary way in which we talk to each other and then speak out as a conference is working, if that is getting through. You have in the past, for example, J.D., been fairly skeptical of the way that the bishops' conference and its committees sort of comment publicly on affairs of moment, the timeliness I of have, the, you're right. The timeliness of those interventions and the wording and the tone of all of that. And the value of and them. The I value. mean, whether they're actually but I mean, again, moving the, the ball value on is a product of happened. the timing and right. the wording and the yeah. you know you know, what are they achieving as a conference? And I'm not saying that as a sort of rhetorical nothing. You know, I'm saying they need to re examine that. Are they speaking yeah. with evangelical authority and witness? Right. Or do they sound like an NGO? Right, exactly. And I think there's been this long, there, there's this, there, there is this um, reality that oftentimes bishops in the conference or even in many individual bishops, not all, but many individual bishops, when they speak publicly, they, they, their words are filtered through um, their attorneys, their words are filtered through PR mm-hmm. people, and their words are filtered most especially, I think, through their observation of the way that sort of politicians and public figures or CEOs speak. And I think a lot of times bishops think that's how I'm supposed to talk because that's how powerful and influential people in the world talk, right? I mean, to some extent, I think the curial staff shapes the way that bishops talk and the conference staff shapes the way that bishops talk. But I do think that there is a sense among bishops that when I release a statement or give an interview, there's a certain way that conveys a savvy authority that correlates to kind of authority or officialdom in the world, right? I'm. I, you can tell that I, as bishop, am a sort of professional person because look at how the way I talk. But the bishops who make the most difference are bishops who who speak prophetically and authoritatively and without fear and of deeply um, personal uh, repercussions. And without fear, I think most especially, um, or without with confidence in their vo- own vocation and their own identity. So a bishop who says, I can talk like a bishop, I don't have to talk like a politician or a CEO, because it's a good thing to be a bishop. It's it's a great thing to be a bishop, and um, I can own this kind of authority without insecurity about whether or not people will listen to me, or whether or not I'll sound smart enough or good enough or meaningful enough in a sophisticated, sort of savvy world. I, th- I think another way of saying exactly what you're saying, which I agree with entirely, is you don't have to try and sound like a bishop when you speak. You are a bishop. Right. Yeah, no, bingo. Yeah, that's right. How I think a bishop sounds is different from just, I'm a bishop. This is what and, a bishop sounds like because it's me. And the Lord called me to be a bishop. Yeah, and I that's can have my a great point. Deal you of received an Episcopal because, consecration. Yeah. You were sacramentally right. confirmed in this role. Like, you don't have to, you don't have to, you know, get, for lack of a better word, get the right hat. You. But part of the point that I'm making, and I think you're picking up on it, is I think there are a lot of bishops. Th- these priests are saying my, the bishops are these bishops are imperious and um, are operating from hubris and stuff like that. It is my experience, in knowing a fair number of bishops, that bishops are often acting actually from insecurity, mm-hmm. um, from a lack of confidence about their own yeah. qualification for their role, or a lack of confidence about how to exercise their role, sort of in the modern world. And I think that that insecurity is the thing which has bishops lean on half-crafted sort of quasi-CEO, quasi-politician um, type into which they can just sort right. of insert themselves or believe that that will give them some... And to give this sort of immediate focus and everything, like when the bishops meet in Baltimore in three weeks' time, there's going to be a lot of discussion. There's going to be a lot of floor discussion on a bunch of different topics. There'll be some votes. There'll be the usual amendment process, all that stuff. But every contribution matters. And the tone of every contribution matters and contributes to the overall tone of the conference and how it is perceived by the people watching who are overwhelmingly mm-hmm. clerics or ecclesiastical professionals yeah, or their, or yeah, yeah their own their own presbyterate not least among them and i mean there is occasionally and i have sensed this and again i'm not trying to like be mean or anything here this has just been my experience of being in the room for several years on the bounce now is that when a bishop does stand up and speak prophetically or charismatically. Everyone else kind of looks at him like he's just farted into the microphone. Yeah. Like, you know, why are you talking about Jesus, man? We're trying to be grown-ups here. You know, like- well, there is, I mean, there's another kind of thing that happens at the Bishop's Conference where there, there, there are clearly people, 
There are bishops who seem to speak as if they are showboating for some likes on, you know, social media or whatever. That's Mac not Mole especially helpful I've heard them either. Are, right, exactly. Bishop, yeah, those who sort of keep popping up, right? They've exactly. Got, they those somehow can, manage to have an opinion on everything. Yeah, and they're the usual suspects, and they keep popping up, and they seem to be sort of playing to some playing to social media, some I think playing to other bishops to show that they're in the know, these kinds of things. But yeah, there's a cadre of bishops who I think stand up to speak prophetically, and sometimes that's not well received. Now, the exception to that, one of the most sort of powerful exchanges among bishops that I have seen in a long time, and I've said this on the show before because I really believe it, is uh, in 2018 when the vote on the thing was canceled. You guys know what I'm talking about. That bishops were supposed to vote on a thing and then the Holy See told them not to. There was this open mic session mm-hmm. and bishops just talked about what their experience was with what was happening mm-hmm. with McCarrick, et cetera. And, um, and, and it, was, it was one of the most human moments of the American Episcopacy that I think the church has seen. And it communicated to me, sitting in the room, a more serious intention on the part of the bishops as a group and individual bishops who spoke of the pain and sincerity which they were experiencing in the face of the McCarrick crisis than any policy they could possibly have passed with unanimous consent. Yeah. Okay, so one thing you're talking about, the way that bishops talk and the way that bishops speak in public, and I think that does make a big difference. But um, that makes a big difference, I think, for trust among the public and to some extent among the presbyterates. But it does honestly seem to me that if I were a bishop and and I read this, the number one thing that I think I would do would be to schedule in every deanery, uh, regularly, to prioritize in my schedule in every deanery, um, not a kind of meeting where I make all the deans, co- all the priests of the deanery come and I talk at them and they just have to sit there, but some mechanism of honest-to-God just p- presence. I would ask, a, I would ask the pa- a pastor in every deanery to host me for basically like drinks and cigars all over the diocese with the presbyterate, and I would do everything I could to just make getting to know and be, begin with the evening prayer, but getting to be putting myself in a position where priests could feel, and it would probably take them a long time. I couldn't do this as a one-off. I'd have to just keep doing it and doing it and doing it, but trying what I could to put my priests in a position where if they felt like I was sitting down to hear them and know them as my sons, right? Because I don't go, when I go to see my dad about something, I don't go to see my dad in his office. And if the bishop is first father, you know, that means a kind of, intimate, familiar knowledge that comes with the persistent application of time. I, I heard Bishop Paraki recently describe the bishop as the pastor of the priests, and um, you know, he said, look, my presbyter are the pastor of the people, and I'm the pastor of the, of the pastors. And that, how does a pastor get to know his people? He has dinner in their home, and he spends time with them, and he, he, he prays with them, but he also just knows, he, he also just makes himself available if he's a good pastor, and he invites them into apostolic sometimes work he makes him, Sometimes he doesn't make himself available. Sometimes he's available whether they like it or not. Like I, sometimes he's available whether they no, like it I'm or saying, not, right? I've, you know, I've, t- I've uh, told the story, I think on the show before, of, you know, when Archbishop Hebda, now of Minneapolis-St. Paul, was the coadjutor in Newark. He had a habit of just like showing up on Sunday mornings at the back pew of a mass and he'd listen to Father's homily and watch him say mass. And then he'd just, you know, knock on the back door of the of the rectory and say, hey, can I stay for lunch? Yeah. And I mean, that's I'll tell you something. kind of spontaneous, like we're going to get to know each other because this is an important relationship that I think is great. And the other thing I would say is um, we asked, I asked um, earlier this week, Bishop Andrew Cousins of Crookston what he thought of this survey, and he called it an examination of conscience. And I think that that is, you know, if we're talking about yeah. what are good Episcopal takeaways, like treat this as literally an examination of conscience. If you are one of the 93% or whatever it was of bishops would say, I'd handle it very well if one of my priests came to me with a personal problem, then, then game that out for yourself. Say, okay, let's imagine Father Steve or Bill or whoever comes to you and says, Bishop, I'm having a real problem with this woman. And, and I don't know. I kind of got myself into a bit of a hole here, and I, I don't know what to do. Just and, I have a, cru- a big crush, yeah, or I've been yeah. spending too much time in a particular yeah, friendship. I, whatever, I've got yeah. myself into a bit of a personal hole here, and I, I don't know how to get out of it. What 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 do you think? What what should I do? If the first place your mind goes to in that hypothetical scenario is, well, we've got to call a lawyer. We should probably you know move him, button him up. All right, we should probably send him for psychiatric evaluation. Like If that's where your mind goes to, then that's a useful examination of conscience to make. And you might want to revisit the, oh, yeah, I'd handle it very well. Well, I'll tell you something. Last night, I was talking to a very conservative—I'm here in the Diocese of San Diego giving some talks. 
And I was talking to a pretty conservative priest in the Diocese of um, San Diego, um, the type who would have, I think, a number of intellectual disagreements uh, with his bishop, Cardinal McElroy, who is, is not, I don't think anyone would say, a pretty conservative prelate. And, uh, and so he, he told me that, indeed, he does have a number of intellectual disagreements with um, Cardinal McElroy. But then he told me something that I was really struck by and that really impressed me. He said, um, Cardinal McElroy is the kind of person who, when he is with his presbyterate, he lays out his views and then he opens up the floor for discussion and he has confidence in his own authority such that he's not threatened when people disagree with him. He said he's not threatened when our presbyterate disagrees with him. He said he takes it, if our presbyterate, if people in our presbyterate say that they have some disagreement with him about some theological issue or pastoral plan or something like that, he said the cardinal is smart and he, he might take it as an opportunity or an invitation for a kind of intellectual debate. But then he said, but you know, the cardinal won't he said, what means a lot to me, and I was really struck by this, he said, the card- nobody's afraid that the cardinal is going to punish them because they disagreed with him in a conversation or in a meeting. Nobody's afraid that laying out their viewpoint is going to mean that later on, if they a- ask to be moved, the cardinal's not going to be receptive, or if they come to him with some issue or some idea, the cardinal's not going to be receptive. Like, he- the thing that he said most of all is the cardinal has confidence in himself enough that he's not threatened by uh, honest-to-God engagement with his presbyterate. And Whatever you think of the theologies, the theological ideas of Cardinal McElroy, that is an example, I think, of a kind of magnanimity that is that that does engender trust. You know, and this was one man's opinion. I don't know what the rest of the presbytery here thinks, but it seems to me that disposition engenders trust, right? Yeah, I, I'll give another example. Uh, the 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 diocesan bishop in the United States that I hear most often from his own clergy that he is sincerely treats them like a father treats his sons is Cardinal Joe Tobin of Newark. I have no, never people heard, say I have never heard a story from any of his diocesan clergy that says anything other than if I have a personal problem, I can go to him and he will treat me like a father to a son that I have confidence in that relationship. And that's great. And again, this is, you know, this cuts across people who'd say, and I love what the Cardinal thinks about X, Y, or Z, but I can't stand how he thinks about X, Y, but they all agree that they will, that they can, they can have a positive and personal relationship with their Bishop. And that is a good thing. Yeah, it's a thing, this kind of thing that we're talking about and the, and trust in bishops, and I, this is what presbyters have told me many, many times and I've observed, it's not the same thing as theological alignment. No, and it is not at all. It cuts across the various kind of ideologies. You know, I can think of bishop uh, priests in another diocese where the um, where the where their archbishop is a very, very prominent American churchman, and those who disagree with him theo- theologically often tell me, yeah, as much as I disagree with him theologically— what really hurts is that he doesn't listen. Yeah. What's really frustrating well, is he doesn't hear me. I know other places where they where, where guys say of their bishops, I love to hear him preach. Boy, do I agree with what he says. But I know if anybody ever made any kind of accusation or even raised a suspicion about me, he'd march me out in front of the cathedral and set me on fire before he even thought to ask what I had to say. Yeah, and I think a lot of guys have, you know, there are guys in a lot of dioceses who have the fear that if I go to the bishop with a problem— he's going to punish me for it in one way or another. Yeah. And, uh, and that's not... So if I were a bishop, I mean, I would just... I would make it a point to... to Do it, Bishop Cousins Make it an that. examination of conscience. Like, really walk through. How would I react? And then what is the way that I get to know my men? You know, you mentioned Archbishop Hebda, and uh, we did that live show in St. Paul, Minnesota, a little while ago, and... Uh, and after we finished the show, Archbishop Hebda, there were a bunch of staffers there from the chantry, and so some of them texted the archbishop and said, hey, you should come down to this. So Archbishop Hebda came down, which was really quite cool. But what I found very interesting about it is that he actually, he didn't start by saying hello to us or anything. He, I think he came because there were a bunch of priests there. And because what I noticed is he talked to his presbyterate. He checked in with his guys to see how they were doing. He was not there to see us. Long before, no, I don't think he was there to see us. I think he was there because a bunch of his guys were there. Yeah, I think he and found out that a bunch of his priests and staffers were hanging out in a bar, and he wanted to— He wanted to go see how they're doing. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's right. Yeah, no, I don't even think that we were— yeah, I don't think we were I mean, the draw. Very, we were the accidental came, venue. Right? Yeah, it was very kind that he came, but I do think it was— my. Some of my guys are there. Some of my staffers are there. I'm going to go down and see how they're doing, right? Yeah. And that was— Cool. Okay, so that's the thing. So your point is how we communicate. A bishop think very carefully about how we communicate. My point is a bishop think very carefully about his presence in the um, among his presbyterate that he think about himself as a pastor of them. And there's a tension there, right? Because he also has to be uh, the diocesan bishop. And this is a tension, right? That every father experiences. That I that I have to that integrating my fatherhood into my identity means that I have to be both 
formator of my children and have the heart of God the Father for my children, and at the same time be just as is God the Father and be the arbiter of justice. With my, and that's a tension, and all parents know that tension, right? But the bishop has to know that tension as well, and uh, he has to just be able to have confidence in his ability to do that and then sort of exercise the kind of good governance that allows him to to understand that he has to have the heart of God the Father and also be just as God the Father is just. Um, the other thing, though, that I would say, Ed, is, you know, people describe the diocesan bishop often as administrator. And I do think we have to, we have to say what's different about the bishop of even, that the bishop of even Baker, Oregon, this probably the smallest diocese in America, or Crookston, Minnesota, which might also be the smallest diocese in America, one of these tiny little dioceses, or, or, uh, or Gaylord, Michigan, which might also be one of the smaller dioceses in America. The bishop of those places has, those tiny little places, has 100 times the amount of paperwork and administrative responsibility as Augustine, the bishop of Hippo, or even 100 times the amount of paperwork as did St. John Neumann or some of the great, you know, American bishops, even probably 10 times the amount of paperwork, not maybe that, but even considerably more paperwork and administrative responsibility uh, responsibility than John Cardinal O'Connor, Archbishop of New York, not too many decades ago. Or Fulton Sheen. Or Fulton Sheen, for that matter, right? Because, and Fulton Sheen's own exercise of governance, I think, in the diocese, people are calling into question. But the administrative responsibility... It was not a shining example, yes. Right, exactly. The administrative responsibility of a bishop... The kind of paperwork that goes along with that, the kind of you know meeting responsibility, insurance responsibility, protocols, all of that has increased dramatically. So, bishop as administrator is not not. We shouldn't only think of that as pejorative. There's a certain kind of man who has the aptitude and disposition to do the kinds of administrative things that a bishop has to do. And we may think, well, I want every single bishop in America to be um, called f- from among the most sort of fiery. Uh, preachers or pastoral presence types that I can find. But honest to God, abbots and bishops have historically had to be cut from a particular kind of cloth because they have, there's a particular kind of householder job that does have to be done, right? Mm-hmm. No, you and can, so we good have, stewardship is not uh, an optional extra. Right, exactly. And, and governance is, gov, you know, governance is as much uh, a responsibility as, sanct- as sanctification and teaching, right? I mean, Priest, prophet, and king. King, lamentably, in contemporary American episcopacy, means have to do a lot of policy and protocol things. And we can't pretend those things are just like, oh, he's hiding behind his desk. The bishop has to integrate all those other things into his life, but the demands are real and concrete. And so I have a little bit of sympathy for bishops who are saying, I'm drowning in the paperwork and people think all I care about is the paperwork. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, One thing there I do think is that I think the bishop has to... the, the challenge for the contemporary bishop is to find a way to delegate a lot while still exercising, while not delegating away his own Episcopal authority and his own sort of a le- leadership prerogative and mandate. He has to find a way to say of the finance officer, the finance officer is expert in these things. I am not expert in these things. I need to understand them because the buck stops with me and I need to pattern some leadership here, but I don't need to become as financially adept as the finance officer and I have to figure out what that delegation in confidence looks like. Yeah, but it is a real thing, the delegation. I mean, that is that is why in the apostolic church they created the order of deacons. As they said, you know, we, we, we have other things that we need to make a priority, like praying and evangelizing, but somebody has to care for the widows and orphans and handle the money. Somebody has to do the paperwork. We need help. So we're going to create the order of deacons. You know, that this is the, 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 the need to delegate and to delegate to trusted people with a serious mind for the church under the guidance of the Holy Spirit is is a real thing. It's always been a real thing in the church. It is it is part of the church as we have had it handed down since literally the Acts of the Apostles. Yeah, that's right. And then in the same way, we need to be able to say, we need to just set realistic expectations. So, peop- so the bishop has to do these things that we should ought to do, some of these things that we're talking about. But we also need to set realistic expectations. Bishop as father does not does not mean, can't mean, bishop as spiritual director, both no. sort of as a matter of good governance, but also just in a reality. I think we have to, we have to, and by we, I mean those who work in close collaboration to a bishop, I suppose, presbyterate. Which is and, not us anymore, J.D. You know, not I us anymore, I know, but you know what I mean. There is a mandate on the other side of that equation. Let's say that. There is a mandate on the other side of that equation to say, 
I, I do know that I have to temper my expectations of what's a realistic relationship to have with my bishop. And my relationship with my bishop can't, I can't impose on my relationship with my bishop the expectation that it will heal the sort of wounds of my own broken family or strange relationship with my with fatherhood or these kinds of things. Like I have to have a realistic expectation about what this relationship can be. I, I, it, it ought to be very many things, but um, I can't, there's a way in which one can put too much on it too, and then inevitably be disappointed. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. What else would you like to talk about, Ed? Can we talk about, um, can we talk about Charlie Brown? Yeah, we can talk about Charlie Brown. What the hell, man? Wait, hold on. Archbishop Charles Brown, the Apostolic Nuncio to the UN Mission in Geneva? No, Charlie Brown. It's the Great Pumpkin wah, Charlie wah, Brown. Wah, 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 wah. Peanuts. You want to talk about peanuts? Yeah. Specifically the holiday specials, which are the most important cultural currency, I would argue, in the United States. Apple bought them, and you're angry because Apple bought them, and now you can't watch them on broadcast television. Is anyone watching broadcast television? Yeah. You know who's watching broadcast television? The 14.5 million Americans living in um, rural areas without gateway speed to internet access. They don't even have cable? You can't watch Apple TV on cable. I'm just uh, thinking about broadcast television at the moment. Well, free-to-air television, I don't, you know, it's nothing to me whether it's CBS, ABC, PBS. I don't, I don't care. The point is, if you've got a TV, can you watch it? No. No. you got to sign up. you gotta, got to fork over your details. you got to pay either with your personal information or your credit card or whatever else. Like, is, that, is there anything more antithetical to Charlie Brown? Yeah, I'm surprised that, the, um, that Peanuts isn't owned by something like the Schultz Family Trust that does a good job to keep it in the, in the public sphere. But I have no idea what the details of any of this are. I just saw in your newsletter that you were going off about this. What's the deal? It's, no, it sucks. I mean, who owned it? Uh, I'm not entirely clear who used to own it. I mean, the, the rights to broadcast were it was for uh, since the great pumpkin charlie brown was first broadcast in 66 i think it has been on unbroken until 2020 when apple acquired unbeknownst to me or a lot of people i think the rights to exclusive broadcasting and they took it off free to air for a year and apparently enough people noticed that everyone lost their ever-loving minds this is by the way what they own is it's the great pumpkin charlie brown charlie brown thanksgiving and charlie brown christmas so the big three the important ones but then last year, they were like, okay, yeah, we realize that's probably a bad luck for us. So we'll let PBS broadcast them on the day so that we keep the tradition alive and everything. But this year's like, no, 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 no. We'll make it free on Apple TV, but you got to sign up. You know, you got to basically do everything except pay a line item charge for, to watch the thing for like three days around the holidays. You still have to pay to watch it any other time. And I just think this is, this is insane. I mean, is there no public interest in some parts of our cultural real estate like is there like i don't understand the government can walk in and say we're we're putting a compulsory purchase order on your house because we want to build a road through here because eminent domain or whatever like do, is there no cultural version of that over here to say like this is this is so important to our common cultural experience and identity that no you don't get to put it behind your stupid paywall on your dumb smartphone all right we're gonna play peanuts character yes or no okay charlie brown yes snoopy yes Schroeder. Yes. Lucy. No. Linus. No. Sally. No. Peppermint Patty. Yes. Woodstock. No. Marcy. No. Rerun. Yes. Spike. No. What? <laughs> I did that just to mess with you. You don't mean it. Though. No, I don't mean it. I, do. I wanted to see if I get a reaction. No, of course Spike. Sp Spike is Snoopy's brother who lives out in the, like, 29 Palms yeah. area, the California desert. And uh, Spike's awesome. Spike's so awesome. Everything to do with Snoopy and his, like, Snoopy's adventures are the best. Like, the, 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 my personal pan favorite, Charlie Brown. And, like, we're going to exclude Linus like, reading the gospel because, yeah, okay, that's great. And another reason why we want this is so that, you know, at least once in America, every Christmas, everyone has to listen to the actual announcement of Luke's gospel on Christmas. Like, that's another good thing. But leaving that aside... My absolute best, Charlie Brown, everything is Snoopy the Red ba and the Red Baron. I mean, that is I, like everything to do with Snoopy. Like that's the that's the really that's the good stuff. I love it. Five. Which one's that? Five is a character who he's a kind of a minor character, but his name is like five 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 something. It's whatever his zip code is. He moves from 
he moves from somewhere and his uh, his last name is his zip card. His parents were some kind of like weird, I don't know, avant-garde people and they named the kid Five and he just sort of shows up and then shows no. out in some... Uh, no, no, you don't like Five? No. He's a kind of commentary on avant-garde stupidity, I guess. Well, I mean, then I guess against the character in favor of the message. Frida. No. Franklin. Yes. Pigpen. Yes. Violet. Yes. Patty. Not Peppermint Patty, but the other Patty. Which one's the other Patty? The other Patty. You know, she... Oh, the mean girl's Patty. Um, I guess. I mean, no, there is a little clique uh, of... And again, they're all really nasty to um, to Pigpen all the time. And they're like, you know, don't, don't say... And they're all, you know, they all look down on Charlie Brown. And, you know... They're, they're, the, cat, finally, they're the catty lunch table. No to all of them. And finally, Edward, the little redhead girl. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. You love the little redhead girl? It's it's the MacGuffin of all MacGuffins. Yeah, that's that is uh, that is that is indeed true. We all JD, is, we all have a little redheaded girl in our life. It's got to be a better way to say that. <laughs> yeah, but Rosebud doesn't sound better without a con- without the context. No, but that's, that's true. Fifi, which one's Fifi? Fifi, oh, Fifi's awesome. Fifi is a French dog. I presume she's a poodle. <laughs> who, when Snoopy is in Red Baron Adventures, Fifi is uh, sometimes she's actually a kind of girl fighter pilot. Sometimes she's just so a when Snoopy gets shot down over France, he goes and Fifi yeah, hides him right. from Fifi the tr- then a, strong yes, mm-hmm. strong yes. Yeah, Fifi is Fifi's awesome. Strong yes, great. Well, Ed, I guess we have done it again. We have spent another hour talking about matters ecclesiastical and the cartoon stylings of our favorite Minnesota cartoonist Charles Schultz. And uh, that was great, and I have enjoyed being with you. Anything else more that you would wish to say? No, I, I thoroughly enjoyed our little chat this week. Well, this week's episode, in addition to being brought to you by Camp Voitiwa, is brought to you by Sunday School, a Pillar Bible Study podcast. Um, check out Sunday School, a really great Bible study podcast from the Pillar. Um, it's called Sunday School, a Pillar Bible Study, and you can get it wherever fine podcasts are to be gotten. Uh, in the meantime, the Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and NGD Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Gunnett. Our executive producer, who is super talented, our pal, we just think the world of her, is our friend. And I don't know, can you call your employee your f- friend or is it then like you're imposing that on her? You are imposing like, What if she doesn't want to be our friend and exactly. I'm saying friend and she works here? Our treasured superlative colleague. employee, our treasured colleague, our confrere, consoir, our consoir in arms, Kate Oliveira. Consoir might be a thing. Uh, We'll be back next week.